thank you very much, Ricardo, and uh, the other organizers for inviting me to speak. And uh, thank you very much for your attention. I'm going to, this title is, is actually just referring to one part of the talk I'm going to give. I'm trying to get, I'm going to try to give you an overview of five different um, areas of my research that are relevant to, at least I believe, to neuroaesthetics. And since I only have, actually a bit of time, I only have um, uh, half an hour, let's see, I did finish around 22 past, I guess. Um, I, uh, I'm going to have to be very simplistic, um, but I hope it's enough for you to get a feel for the kind of research I'm doing, and that way uh, you can talk to me afterwards over coffee or dinner or email me later and we can uh, go into um, uh, more detail then. But this is just to give you a flavor of what I'm doing. So I'm going to go over these five topics uh, in detail um, and try to sketch out how they're related to neuroaesthetics. The title of the talk actually concerns this third area, synthetic phenomenology. So, I'm not a neuroscientist. I am an artificial intelligence researcher, philosopher, cognitive scientist, really, by training, mainly a philosopher. Um, so most of the work that I'm doing and I'm reporting on here is really providing a bridge from aesthetics and art to the cognitive sciences. And I think, therefore, uh, there's a natural, once that's done, there's a natural way to tie that work into uh, the neurosciences. But I'm thinking of neuroaesthetics as really a more general field of the kind that um, Ricardo sketched out at the beginning than just specifically limited to um, work that's in, uh, directly connected with neuroscience. But it can be any kind of scientific understanding of the mind being applied to uh, art or vice versa. So with respect to this workshop, really I'm wondering how can the models that I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes, how can they be informed by more neuroscientific detail or more or better knowledge of art and aesthetics, and vice versa? Uh, can they actually help, say, suggest research directions for neuroscience or suggest directions in aesthetics or art? So let's take embodied creativity first. Uh, this, my task has been made um, easier here by uh, Professor Parisi's talk because uh, the perspective I'm taking in this aspect of my research is very similar to what uh, Professor Parisi is doing. And so I can just say that uh, I also am interested in getting robots to exhibit aesthetically creative behavior. Um, so it has to be novel in some sense, at least for the robot and of aesthetic value for the robot uh, and, if possible, for humans. Uh, and the idea is to take an engineering approach where you don't directly model human creativity. You don't directly model, say, what we know about the neuroscience of human creativity, but rather um, trying to uh, you only use um, knowledge of, of creativity in humans when it's expedient to getting the um, so it's allowing for the possibility that we might get insights into what counts as aesthetic or artistic creativity, even if it's being done in a very different way than uh, how it's realized in the human brain. 
And that's really a general point about the artificial intelligence approach. The idea is that if you synthesize a novel instance of something, even if it's being done in a very different way than the natural instances, nevertheless, because it's another instance of the same thing, we can see general, we can draw general conclusions. So the way that we achieved artificial flight wasn't by imitating birds. The people who tried to imitate bird flight failed. It was only by abstracting out the general principles of artificial flight by creating, say, an artificial airfoil that didn't flap, didn't have feathers, that we understood what principles were involved in aerodynamics, and then we could develop flight and control flight. Um, similarly, so the artificial intelligence researcher says maybe it's going to go for uh, uh, artistic creativity or consciousness or intelligence, whatever. It's just by trying to synthesize um, the same thing in a new medium, we might acquire better high-level insights as to the and I have to say, this is only a manifesto, this is only a statement of the approach that I really want to take in this, in this area one. Uh, it isn't implemented yet. Um, so it's just a set of, uh, um, uh, it's a set of, I, I'm going to just list one more, have one more slide in this, on this area. It's just a set of assumptions I'm making in this area that I think will be useful for understanding, um, uh, creating an artificially aesthetically creative agent. Um, one uh, simple idea is to use this notion of motivators that Professor Friesen talked about. If, if you have motivations built into your robot, or if you allow your robot to develop motivations such that novel inputs will be highly experienced as being highly pleasurable, then it will be more likely that that robot will produce what it considers novel, uh, novel inputs. So one way to get creativity out of your robot is to make things that are creative um, experiences pleasurable for that robot and let pleasure uh, be the dominant uh, principle in action selection. Um, to be a good creator of aesthetic objects, it helps to be a good appreciator of aesthetic objects. I think a lot of work in artificial creativity has ignored this fact. They've tried to create, say, uh, music composition programs that are supposed to generate nice musical outputs, but the, the program that's producing these outputs is not itself an appreciator of music. It, can ne it cannot listen to music, and it has no uh, experience of pleasure or anything like uh, pleasure when, um, if, you give it, if you were to somehow allow it to hear music. The idea here is the robot will be first, in the first instance, capable of perceiving the world and perceiving, let's say, in this case, sound and derive some pleasure from some sounds, that is, seek out those sounds when possible. If it notices that when it performs a particular action, a sound that it gets pleasure from results, then it will tend to engage in that action in the future. Um, in order to prevent things from getting um, boring, oh, well, let me move on to the third principle. The third principle is that rather than having this be a completely virtual exercise where the things created are bits of uh, symbolic specifications of notes and the things that are perceived by the robot are symbolic specifications of notes. Why not let the robot actually make acoustic vibrations in the air in the real world and perceive those acoustic vibrations in the air just as we do? I think this will um, allow for, there are all kinds of reasons I can't go into now for why this will have, I think, better results. Um, but one I can mention is just uh, not only will be able to hear these sounds, but also um, it will be able to hear all the sounds that we're generating all the time. It will hear, it will 
um, be experiencing the, the real world and therefore be more likely to be socialized into our real world. But also it'll allow for a kind of serendipity, a kind of unplanned um, uh, emergent creativity that is missing in the austere world of the symbolic, um, symbolic and specified music. Um, Professor Parisi already mentioned point four. I really won't go over it more than that. But so the, the degree to which you, you better make the preferences of a robot similar to the preferences of humans. Otherwise, it, what uh, we are unlikely to perceive uh, uh, to ascribe much value to what uh, the robot um, ascribes value to. And uh, social aspects are important. But I'll, I'll skip over that. We just heard a very good talk about that. Um, and also, too. Um, the, a big idea that I'm trying to focus on is that um, the, you, can, you can think of uh, creative output as being the outcome of a, an arms race, internal arms race between two parts of a creature, two parts of the robot in this case. One part is its capacity to understand the world and make sense of it. The other part of the race, the other thing that it's competing with is uh, deliberately trying to outstrip that uh, that first part. That is, uh, it's the part of the world that uh, part of the robot that wants to be surprised, that gets pleasure out of novelty. And if the robot itself is making sounds that it's also listening to, then maybe the first time it makes some sounds, it will find that novel and interesting and surprising, and therefore will get pleasure out of it. But quickly, it will habituate and lose interest in that. Um, so the, the idea is to have the robot constantly increasing its abilities to detect patterns, which will make it harder and harder for it to be surprised and harder and harder for an output that it makes to be novel. So then it will try harder to create outputs that um, outstrip its pattern classification abilities and so on in a mutually beneficial spiral. Uh, dynamics should play a role as a temporal aspects of the of the of the product of that the thing that they've been saying, in this case music, music that the robot is making to play a role. And um, the patterns in the robot's own internal states can be monitored by the robot and can be the objects of appreciation. So it might find aesthetic value in certain of, it, of sequences of its own internal states. And that could have a dimension of richness here that, um, that just the artifacts themselves might not be able to produce. And lastly, um, the best way to make outputs in the real world is to be embodied in the real world, and that's why I have on the previous slide I showed uh, these Ibo robots. The idea here is that instead of just having music making by the Ibo robots be sending some command to a digital sound chip that allows that that makes some uh, vibrations in the air, it might be better to actually require the robot to physically engage in some kind of joint movement or um, limb movement. So the idea here would be that only by, say, moving its arm in this particular way is a particular sound emitted. And so the robot will actually have to act in the world in order to create sounds that it therefore, that it there um, afterwards finds pleasing or displeasing. And so it'll uh, be more like the kinds of physical uh, creativity that um, humans have. Action in the real world will be required. Okay, so that's one of um, the areas that I'm interested in, and I can't spend uh, uh, any more time on it really. I just have a few slides here just um, to, uh, to say that uh, the underlying architecture is roughly neurally inspired in a very similar form of 
we've seen before, it's just a simple recurrent network. But it is, um, the idea there is that on a very uh, superficial level, we have some kind of neural computation going on. And maybe more realistic models of neural computation would allow for a better connection between neuroaesthetics in the narrow sense and neuroaesthetics in the, the wider context that I'm, I'm talking about. Area two is, I call, inactive models of experience. Um, I've been investigating how one might explain, in particular, visual phenomenology, that is, visual, um, it, the content of visual experience, by understanding it as being the outcome of a set of expectations that we have um, of how the visual input we receive would change if we were to perform different actions. So the reason why I'm seeing the scene, I'm experiencing the scene that I'm experiencing right now is not necessarily because, let's say, to, let's think about the blue that I'm experiencing over from this part of the room, which has to do with the tablecloth over there. Now, according to my account here, the reason why I have an aspect of blue phenomenology there is not because I'm receiving blue wavelength light on, on, on my retina right now, because actually we know that um, color receptors are actually only most densely congregated in a particular... You only really are getting color input right now from a very small region of your retina, and that's not it. Um, so why is it that I'm experiencing blue in that region right now? Well, it's because I have an expectation that were I to look over there and get light falling on that proper part of my the, the phobia where there, is, where there are dense collections of color receptors, I have an expectation that I would get a certain kind of input, an input characteristic of, of blue-colored things in this light. Um, so that's, so my, my, the theory that I'm looking at here is basically saying that um, most of, say, your visual experience is not a fact function of the light hitting your eyes right now. It's a function of the expectations of what kind of light you would receive were you to move this way and that, move your eyes over there, move your head over there. And, of course, that's the result of the light hitting your eyes in the past when you did look over there before. But right now, it's actually constituted by your expectations of sensory input, not the sensory input you're receiving at this moment. So... The idea is, I can't go into why that actually turns out to be a good model of uh, um, a lot of visual phenomenology, but it can account for a lot of uh, <clears throat> aspects of visual phenomenology that are thought to be problematic for certain kinds of, well, we call them representational accounts. But really, if you use this kind of model, you can give plausible accounts of these kinds of, of aspects of visual phenomenology. Um, so the idea with respect to neuroaesthetics neuro is to generalize this expectation-based model of visual experience to see if you can create an expectation-based model of aesthetic experience. So the idea is maybe we could use two extensions. I, I realize I'm asking you, I'm asking a lot of you as, a, as an audience member right now because normally I would spend an hour explaining the theory of uh, expectation-based theory of visual experience, and I'm expecting you to already understand that now, and then understand how it can be modified to account for for aesthetic experience. So I realize you're not going to necessarily understand every everything that I'm talking about here, but I just hope you can get a feel for the kind of work I'm doing, and then we can talk about it later, or I can recommend uh, various uh, papers. 
But the idea here is that if we want to extend it from mere visual phenomenology to aesthetic experience, then maybe we can do that by adding affect. We've already seen several people stress the affective, uh, essentially affective nature of art and aesthetic experience. And also something that is uh, characteristically aesthetic, I don't have a better term for this, that has to do with experiencing a work of art as a work of art, as an artifact that was created by someone uh, using some particular process. Now, the first part uh, isn't so hard. I've already actually been um, doing some work in this regard. Uh, just as a system can have expectations concerning what visual input it will receive if it were to say, look this way or that way. So also, a system can have expectations about whether um, a pleasurable or unpleasurable state will result from various actions. Like if I were to slam my hand down on the desk, that will result in an unpleasurable state for me. So right now, part of my experience is of a thing in front of me that were I to do this, it would be unpleasurable for me. So that's part of my experience right now. It's an affective component. I'm not feeling pain right now. But the fact that I would feel pain were I to do that is part of my experience right now. Or at least it is when I focus on this particular region and these particular actions. So we could incorporate affect in a similar way as we have an account of visual phenomenology. We have this kind of affective phenomenology about all the possible ways I might get rewarded or, or have experienced pain where I could engage in a lot of but there's also this art artificial and the sense of artifice or this aesthetic component. When we experience a visual, say, visual work of art, we do not just experience its visual properties, um, which, I, you could, which I've already talked about, you know, if you ever talk about an account of the visual properties of a work of art, it's just the expected visual input as we move our eyes over the, over the canvas. But in addition to that, we experience it as a work of art in that we have expectations for how the work would change if we were to make this or that brushstroke, or if the artist had made this or that brushstroke. So there's this essential, at least for a certain kind of aesthetic experience, you perceive it as something that is the result of having been made with a, in a particular way. And it might not, you, your idea of how that's done might not be very sophisticated, but it is, you are at least thinking of it as the kind of object that was produced in that way and has its properties by virtue of having certain actions being take, taken onto it. So if this, uh, this is a, a kind of sketch in itself of how we might extend the expectation-based architecture to involve, to get away from just thinking of visual works of art as mere visual um, input, but also as the result of some kind of artistic intervention and experiencing them in that way. Um, so uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Section three, the one that the, the title of my talk most directly concerns, um, is, uh, I call it this, this aspect of my work, synthetic phenomenology. This is maybe best, the best example of how um, what I'm talking about today is not the case of um, neuroscience making, getting, helping us understand art or aesthetics better, but it's how art or aesthetics might help us do neuroscience better. So um, the point 
that I want to emphasize is that if you're trying to give, have a science of consciousness, a science of experience, you better have some way of precisely talking about the experiences that you're trying to explain or using your explanations. We, we use experiences sometimes to explain each other's behavior. So if you want to use particular experiences to explain why someone um, uh, gets up and leaves the room, or if you want to explain uh, experiences themselves, then you better have a precise way of specifying the experiences, specify the character of the experiences. I, I refer to the character as the content of the experiences. Um, so a standard means would be, uh, trying to do that would be to say, the subject is having a visual experience of a red bike hanging against a white fence. Okay, so we'd use English or our language of choice in order to try to specify the content of the experience. But that's notoriously imprecise and inexact. Clearly, our visual experiences are in many ways not captured by that. I mean, for one thing, they, they seem to be very richly detailed. Another way is just a kind of indeterminacy of our visual perceptions that it's hard to capture in English statements like that. So there are all kinds of reasons why this is just um, not very good for scientific purposes. And so it can only specify maybe a subset of our, of, of our experiences, if at all. It's not going to be very useful for a lot of our visual phenomenology. So um, one idea, and I won't be able to go through these slides uh, in detail, uh, given the time restrictions, but one idea is just to use something other than language uh, to try and specify the content of experiences to be explained or they're using in an explanation. And one obvious idea is to use non-symbolic representations. For instance, pictures might be one way. Oh, see what um, you can, it's to use um, pictures as a way of doing that. But um, uh, there's a reason why you can't just uh, for reasons I can't go into, uh, you can't just, if you want to capture the visual content of the scene, the subject is seeing, you can't just take a photograph of that scene. That's too objective, it doesn't reflect the subjectivity of the person viewing the scene and their, what, what they're not attending to, what their interests are. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's better than maybe a linguistic specification in some ways, but it still isn't quite right. So the idea of, this synthetic phenomenology part of my research is to come up with um, depictions of uh, specifications of experience by generating depictions through building robotic models of experience and then uh, using the states of the robotic model to generate diagrams that will give the viewers of the diagrams some idea of the experiential state the robot is modeling. Um, I can't go over uh, all the details here, but Roughly, I'm, I'm going to show you a picture, actually it's a movie, and that movie is meant to give you some idea of the set of, remember I, I, um, I'm taking this expectation-based approach to visual phenomenology, so this diagram is meant to give you an idea of what expectations the robot has for what input it will get if it moves its eye in various ways. Um, so I think I can... show you an example of one of these depictions. Third time is a charm. There we go. So um, this is meant to, the, ro the robotic model of visual experience, the robotic model of visual experience that I have, um, that, you, that I use to generate this, is moving its 
camera around in the world and it's getting information about what is there in the world and therefore it's gener generating expectations about what it will see if it moves its camera back to that part of the world. And uh, since things change, the expectations fade over time. Um, so that, that means that the, it has, it's less and less certain about what information, it, what input it will receive if it moves its camera there as time passes. Um, so here's an example of a way of trying to convey from one theorist to another the content of the experiential state without using a language. I don't just say, well, it's having an experience of a person wearing a green shirt. So that isn't quite really what the experiential state is. It's um, more properly specified with this uh, depicted diagram. So what's the connection to, um, to aesthetics, to art? Well, in a sense, this task of content specification that I'm concerned with, that's what at least some artists have been trying to do for millennia. They've been trying to specify, to kind of trying to communicate from one person to another an experience. Not all art, but some of it. And um, thus, I think there's a clear role here for artists, for graphic designers, for sound engineers, for directors, um, for people who have rather skill at creating in the, uh, the, the audience, let's say, in the audience a particular experience, these are people who have uh, a, a, a skill at if, uh, knowing what needs to be put on the screen in order for the audience to have a particular kind of experience. So they can assist the scientific task of coming up with specifications that will be much better than what I just gave you. What I just gave you just gave you some idea about the expectational state of that robot. But maybe uh, a graphic designer or an artist could say, oh, no, no, we, we know how to do this. Here, this is a much better way. Use this color scheme. Use this timing rate. Use um, this to indicate fading. Don't use that. So there'll be all kinds of ways that artists will... My, my point here is that the visualization here isn't just uh, a superficial add-on to the science. It's essential to the science in this case because the point is to specify the experience precisely and we won't have done that unless we have the right visualization tools or, or oralization tools in the case of sound. So, um, yeah, so here's an example. I'm just going to try to uh, stick through this. So this isn't, um, so, so some people might be worried and say, well, if you're bringing art into it and, and artistic skill, things like cinematographic techniques, then um, aren't we losing objectivity of science? Isn't this now becoming too subjective? Science is striving to be objective, but art, artistic techniques are so, 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 so subjective. So isn't that a problem? Well, perhaps, but the reason, when art works, it's for an objective reason. So there's a reason why we understand the neuroscience of, say, persistence of vision. We know why. We know the conditions that have to obtain for you to experience the illusion of motion. We know how many frames per second. That's an example of how we can use science to investigate the techniques that artists have been using for a much longer uh, length of time. But artists need to suggest those techniques to us. They techniques to us, and then we can um, have a, uh, a unified scientific and artistic approach. 
that will allow us to do it, to do so in an objective way. And this this makes the the theorists who's using this content specification techniques almost it's making them a part of the inquiry actually, because you have to understand the psychology of and perceptual capacities of the theorists. How much time do I have? Left? Um, so I'm not really worried about the subjectivity or In fact, I think science does strive to be objective, but the objectivity of science is not the elimination of the, sub of the scientist's subjectivity. It's the negotiation or exploitation of the science, sub scientist's subjectivity. So using the scientist's subjectivity in the right way, that's what uh, an objective science of consciousness should be doing. Um, so, uh, as I said, I think we have a two-way interaction here. It's not just that um, we're doing a, a neuroscience of art or a neuroscience of aesthetics. We're also trying to see how artistic insight and techniques and methodologies can help us in doing a science of the mind. Um, the fourth area, and these last two are very quick, um, one, just one slide for the fourth area. I call this uh, aspect of my research interactive empiricism. don't really have time to explain the term. But uh, I think that a lot of uh, roadblocks in our understanding of the mind, in particular our understanding of consciousness, are philosophical roadblocks. They're conceptual roadblocks. And therefore, uh, we need conceptual breakthroughs. We need conceptual progress. And I think it's, I think, I, I think it's the case that not all of those conceptual breakthroughs can be achieved by reason alone. You can't just sit in your armchair as a philosopher and achieve these philosophical breakthroughs. It's still philosophy that needs to be done, but the breakthroughs that are needed cannot be, require new concepts, not just recombinations of concepts that are already possessed. And I think that it's a fact about our cognitive makeup and the cognitive makeup of philosophers that in order for them to get these new concepts, they actually have to do something. In order to acquire sufficiently radically new concepts of something, you need to engage in experiential activity. So to quote something that Aaron Sloman and I wrote a few years ago, modeling of consciousness requires some clarifications and refinements of our concept of consciousness. Design of, construction of, and interaction with artificial systems can itself assist in this conceptual development. And uh, also I think not just building artificial systems like robots, but also sensory augmentation devices, so some work I've done with Tom Fraser and Adam Spears uh, using a sensor augmentation device that I don't have time to explain. Uh, I, we, we've been doing uh, studies to see how using this device has actually changed people's concepts of perception. And in particular, and most relevant to today, artworks are, in this sense, artificial systems. The creation of them and interaction with them uh, might uh, be crucial to coming up with the new concepts of aesthetic experience that we require, uh, and maybe uh, experience in general, that we require in order to make progress on some of the conceptual roadblocks that we've encountered. And so finally, we get to uh, work uh, that I've been doing, uh, which is actually producing, uh, in a very modest way, some uh, aesthetic objects that have been um, exhibited in a couple of places. Oh. Actually, we're missing one. Right. 
So, oh well, that's not the one I thought you were going to see. Oh, there we go. So we've created some aesthetic objects um, as well. So my interest in neuroaesthetics, the connection between um, a scientific understanding of the mind and art, is not just the theoretical one in terms of exclamations, vice in, in each way, but actually using some of the um, data structures that we generate uh, by having our robots interact with the real world, uh, using them in a way that creates, well, turning them into um, aesthetic objects for their own sake. Um, so we've had uh, a couple, uh, we've had um, installations at a couple of places, including the Shrewsbury Open. Um, and here's just an example of one uh, work that uh, is generated by post-processing some of the um, de depictions, uh, like the one you saw earlier, in a particular way. Um, and that's how I will, uh, uh, if I can get past this slide, oh, right, have a recap. Um, so just the final slide. Uh, I'm interested in embodied artistic creativity. I am interested in inactive models of aesthetic experience. I'm interested in specifying the content of the sensory, affective, and for want of a better word, aesthetic components of experiencing artworks. And understanding how, say, ro robots uh, can help us do that. I'm interested in interactive empiricism, that is, changing our concepts of experience through creating or interacting with systems like artworks. And uh, I'm interested in creating artworks and installations themselves. And I think I can just leave you with this running in the background. Thank you. <laughs>